All right. Well, in your little booklet you were given, there's a schedule at the front end that kind of tracks with what's happening. We'll go over some of those details soon. But if you turn the next page over and you'll see session one and some notes there. Um, these notes are, one, they're there to help you kind of follow along um, with what we're learning together. But it's also space. It's space to, to jot down what God brings to mind, um, clarifying moments, ways he's making this personal. So we'd love you to be able to make use of those. Here, here's just this reality and why these kinds of moments that interrupt just the normal pace of life, um, you know, the, the, the calendar year, it's not just Monday, 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 you know, endless Mondays, you know, thank God for that. Uh, but you got times, you got seasons, you, you have, you know, 2017 and then 2018 came. And there are times when, when just kind of normal patterns get interrupted. And, and youth camp is one of those. In the middle of summer, God kind of breaks in in a, in a, in a different way. And this is, this is very helpful um, of the Lord to do this because the, the reality is, you know, you don't drift toward godliness. You, you don't just drift toward a greater knowledge of him, toward growth, toward wisdom, discernment. We, we, we spent some time last year, those of you who came to camp, the, the theme was more about how there's, there's more to experience, more to lay hold of in God, but that, that requires intentionality, that requires effort and pursuit on our part. But the thing is, if, if, if that's not getting attention from us, you know, who, who knows where we've ended up? I shared this thought with uh, some of the college students at the beginning of their retreat in, in the fall. It's a true story about a, a married couple, Glinda and Robert Lennon, and they were a few miles off of the coast of, of Florida, and they were fishing alone on their yacht, and, and Glinda decided she would go out for a swim, but she ended up getting a little too far away from the boat, and, and her husband heard her cries, and without thinking, he just kind of dove in to go rescue her, but she just became, you know, she was drifting further and further away, and so what he decided he would have to do is he would turn around and he would swim back to the boat and then use that to go and rescue her because he'd never be able to reach her otherwise. And so he, he fought the water for six hours until finally the tide turned and he was able to reach the boat. And the, the darkness had settled in, the sun had gone down, uh, and so there just would, would have been a futile search to try to find her. And so the, the next day, there was a search party that went out, and they finally f- found Glinda. She was, she was still floating, still doing her best to kind of just maintain above the water, but she was 20 miles out from where they originally were. Right? And that's just a fact of life. But if, if we are floating, we, we, we never remain in the same place. And, and that's why this time of, of discerning, what, what, what direction am I heading? And what kinds of tides and currents am I following down? And just kind of floating along. And where has that taken me? And, and sometimes it, it, it can be a little disturbing uh, where we've been brought without even realizing um, at the end of this week, here's a trait that I, I want to see the Lord instill in each of you. I want to see you become more disagreeable. 
And that probably sounds pretty weird. I'm not talking about, you know, complaining more. That's why Miss Patrice has her special shirts for that. But I, I want to mean, I want something strengthened in you that doesn't just go along with the flow, that doesn't just go along with everybody else's thoughts and opinions. I've done some interesting reading. There's, there's an author named Malcolm Gladwell, and he traces certain companies and certain startups, and he, he, he follows this, this quality of disagreeableness that often marked certain of the entrepreneurs and guys who had an idea of, of starting up a business. And, and often, it, it, was, it was totally different from what everybody else was doing at the time. It seemed weird. It seemed wrong. But, you know, that didn't bother them. That didn't deter them. And, and while everybody else was kind of doing their best to funnel into the front entrance, they found a way to kind of go around and enter all on their own through the back and land in a place that was successful. But what but, but that required is the approval of other people ultimately doesn't matter to me in what I'm going to decide and what I'm going to uh, pursue. And, and, and that trait, that, you know, that, that catches our attention. People who, they don't just go along with what uh, everybody's thinking and how they're responding. Those are the people that tend to stand out from the crowd. Uh, often that's the reason why certain videos go viral. I heard about recently this woman in China who was just deciding to drive down the highway in her little miniature pink bumper car. And uh, the Chinese government, of all people, told her to stop doing this. And she didn't care. She just uh, continued on in her little bumper car, right? And, and that catches, catches our attention. We, we notice people who are doing weird stuff like that. But there's, there are other images that have kind of gone viral throughout history that have communicated this thought, but in some weightier ways. I posted this one to our Instagram page. But this is just, once you see this picture, you, you never forget it. And this is the kind of man that I want to be. This man, the guy that's in the circle there, his name was August Landmesser, and here he is at a, at a Nazi rally refusing to give the, the Heil salute to Adolf Hitler. Why do you do that? Well, at, at this point in his life, it was mainly because he had fallen in love with a Jewish woman, and he had another affection, he had another allegiance that he stood with more. It doesn't matter you know, what the rest of the crowd is doing doesn't matter. The, the pressure and the threats that I'm facing and ultimately landed him in a concentration camp because of this. He was first kicked out of the Nazi party and then they, they brought more and more kind of uh, consequences into his world. Uh, I don't know if you can kind of see this picture. Jack and Steven reminded me about this one. This is called Tank Man because they don't know this guy's name. But th this, was, this was after the, the, the Chinese military suppressed the Tiananmen uh, Square riots, and they were sending in tanks into the area, and, and he just decided, I'm going to stand in front of them in, in protest to this whole thing, protest to this response. And so the, the tanks would kind of shift lanes and move over, and he would just take a new position and say, you, you got you to go over me if you're going to come into town. But they, they, these images, they, they, they stay with us for a reason. And I think this is, this is a character quality that God wants to foster in us this week. I'm calling it resistance. You got in your notes there. You can define resistance as the refusal to accept or comply with something. Withstanding the force or effect of an opposing influence. Something is coming against you, but, but you are withstanding that. 
Uh, or you can also use the word resistance for an underground organization of a nearly conquered country engaging in sabotage and secret operations against occupation forces and collaborators. Now, when I say the resistance, what comes to mind for you? Right? That's where you go with that. Join the resistance. And that's in the sense of that, that definition right there. There's, there's a resistance movement. There, there are people in power. They think they have essentially conquered the galaxy, right? But there, there, there's something that's worth standing up for. There's something that's worth dying for in opposition to this. And, and, you, and you see that in this book of the Bible that we're going to be engaging this week's the book of Daniel, and if you'd open up there to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel's in the section of Bible, the Bible called the Prophets. And uh, our sessions for this week are all going to come out of some of the stories in Daniel and Probably most of us are familiar with Daniel in the lion's den. Maybe you know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Uh, you may or may not know about the particular account um, that we're going to look at tonight. But these don't just belong in children's ministry, right? Um, there, there is so much uh, relevance and intended impact that this book has uh, for God's people throughout the ages. And I think really needed um, for us today. Um, Daniel's name means God is my judge. And we'll look at, look at tonight the significance of a, of a name, especially in the Hebrew wor- world. Your, your, a name kind of, it, it communicated what you were about. It communicated a little bit of your destiny. And Daniel's name meant God is the one who judges me. God is the one who assesses me. My life answers to God and not to man, not to human powers, not to governing authorities. The the rule for my life and the pattern for my life, it comes from God and not the passing waves and pressures in this world. That, That was Daniel's name. It's what defined him and it's what he lived out of again and again. And, uh, We'll see that in this story as well. So Daniel chapter one, verse one, says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Osphenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, 
he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Got four R, R words that you could use to kind of organize this thought here. You got removal, renaming, resistance, and reversal. And, and first is, is, is removal. And, and it's the reality of the exiles where this story begins, right? Life is under siege for the people of God. This, this other army has showed up and they have ravaged their homeland and they have taken them away from everything that's familiar, all the places that you have known. Everything that feels normal about life is, is, is now gone. I mean, you just imagine how traumatic this is. It's, it's easy to read those stories and not put ourselves in these places. I mean, imagine if just some, you know, North Korea, some other nation showed up on American soil and said, your time living here is done. And you're coming with us, and you're coming to a new land, and you're being torn away from your homes, torn away from your parents, torn away from your friends to a place where they speak a language that is very unfamiliar, that you never used before, and that is now life for you. Your entire world changes in that kind of moment. And that's what, ha- that's what happened to these young people here. They're, they're, they're teenagers when they experience this. Some of you have, have walked through these kinds of things, not at that level, but if you know, parents have divorced and what, what is home, what is normalcy, what, what are the kind of typical patterns and rules for life have suddenly shifted beneath your feet and you're trying to figure out what feels like home today. Or you, you can imagine a little bit of what these young people would have been experiencing. A few of you in here are Elizabeth Elliot uh, fans, and Elizabeth Elliot, she, she was widowed twice, not only in, in losing her, her first husband, Jim Elliot, the missionary, but then her second husband died of cancer as well. And after her second husband died, she used to ask her soul this question. She'd ask, what has not changed even though my husband has died? That's a question for this kind of moment, right? What has not changed even though everything else has changed? Everything around you is now different. And the answer is God. God did not change. The temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is in ruins. All of your favorite places are gone. And God has not changed. I mean, for some of you, just you take away your favorite stuff, take away your devices, it feels like world, your world's over, life is done, there's no reason to go on, right? Everything is gone here, and God remains. And that's what these young people cling to. But the problem is, it looks like God has been defeated. Did you notice how it was described there? Nebuchadnezzar comes in, serving his God, and, and he takes the, the, the vessels of the temple and he takes them out of Jerusalem and he brings them 
over into Babylon and he, and he sets them up in, in the land of Shinar to the house of his God, placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Well, what, what's he doing there? That, that's very intentional. Because one of, the, one of the ways that people thought in these days is when you, you conquered a nation, you, you beat their gods. You did a showdown on the people that they served. And he doesn't destroy these things. He just brings it to his collection of kind of religiously significant stuff. He takes the one and only unique God, Yahweh, and he makes them one option, among other things. Other things that have value and feel compelling and, and, and can do something for your life if you're willing to serve them. He places it among all the idols. And you know, one of my, my big concerns for you, the world you live in, the noise that surrounds you, the, the ideas that float around, it's not that somebody's gonna come up with some really convincing argument as to why Christianity and the stuff that you grew up around is just totally bogus. You know, kind of the old stuff of, well, science disproves that and, and God can't exist because of this or that reason and people arguing back and forth. Right? That, that's not my main concern. I mean, there, there's a concern for some of that. The problem is it just gets drowned out in all the noise and all the things streaming in through your feed and all the other visions of life that get presented to you. And those make sense. It, it, it makes sense that, yes, people should be able to live this way or think this way or do whatever they please in this or that way. And those are the storylines that surround you. And I, and I watch so often Are young people entering into the next season of life. And, and again, it's not because they came across this or that argument that unbolted some of what God had done in them informative years, informative times, like moments like this. It's just everything else became noisy and captured their imagination. And this just feels like one, one option among all that's out there. Nebuchadnezzar is a shrewd dude, and that's what he does here. But, but notice who is still in control, even as it looks like he's been defeated. Did you see it in verse 2? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who did that? God did that. God took the king of Judah, and, and it was, it, he just plucked him up, and it's like he put him in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and said, here you go. I, 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 the other day, I was getting snowballs with my kids, got some change. I don't want to be carrying around quarters in my pocket, so I gave them each a quarter. You know, here you go. You can have this. That, that, that's, how, that's how difficult it was for God to do this, and that's how much he is in control. He just hands him over. The, the movement of nations and powers and governments are described by God just handing something over with ease which means he has not changed. He is still completely in charge while everything around you looks like rubble. 
And the question is, well, why would, why would God do that? Right? These, these are his people. Well, for years and years, centuries, Israel had gone on life, including God. It's fine for him to be a part of life. It's fine to him to be part of the scenery on the horizon among all the other options and things we could be doing. And so two, two things, when you, when you look at why the exile, why are God's people removed away from their home? The two reasons that the Bible gives is, is one, their idolatry. And we look at idols tomorrow night. And, and, and it was never, Yahweh, we're done with him. It was him and maybe serving on the side you know, this God over here who's going to help your crops grow, or this God over here who's going to make you really successful and give you a lot of money, you bring all that in until God says enough. And the other reason why they were removed from the land is they were supposed to every seven years stop all their harvesting, stop all of their plowing of the fields and all this endless activity and let it have rest. And God said, you stop all your activity and you just trust me that I'm gonna, I'm gonna provide. That year is gonna be okay. It's in my hands. I've got it. And they never did that. Year after year after year came and went and they were convinced what is gonna be, what's gonna matter most for me in life is my work and my labor and making sure I get this done and give attention to this and it just was endless busyness and constant activity, and just the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, never turning aside and said, God, my life's in your hands. I trust you. And so he collected each one of those every seven years, and he found 70 of them, and he said, all right, you're gonna be away from the land for 70 years. And that's the setting for the book of Daniel and why these guys with their funny names find themselves removed from everything they've ever known and, and they're kind of brought into this exile re-education program and, and they are immersed, they, they are smothered in Babylonian ideas and ways, right? They're just a, a wash in, an influ, in influence and information. Delroth Davis, commentator, describes what they would have gone through says, what might the immersion in the literature and language of the Chaldeans involve? Probably the study of Sumerian, Akkadian, and Aramaic among languages, and the extensive literature written in them, including the various mythological texts, as well as historiography, astronomy, mathematics, and medicine. You guys thought you were on summer break right now, right? They would likely have to imbibe the scientific omen texts, for example, there was a series of astrological omens in 77 tablets, 23 of which focused on observations of the moon, then perhaps medical omens. One series ran to 40 tablets, nor could they neglect dream interpretation. The longest collection runs to 110 tablets. The regimen could probably prove overwhelming. After a bit, one likely felt a wash in Babylonian literature and lore. What are they trying to do there? They're trying to totally capture their imagination. Let me introduce you to how impressive Babylon has been. The people that we have conquered. The nations that we have buried. 
right? The, the heroes that should grip their attention. And, and, and you know, we're, this isn't something that is foreign to our own experience. We have our own myths that come streaming into our lives. Our own ideas that come and, and they, they, bring, they bring promise that they'll reward us if we, if we give them our allegiance. Here's how Trevin Wax describes it. He's, he's writing, I don't have a slide for this, it's in your, in your notes. He's writing uh, from the perspective of serving as a missionary in Romania. And he talks about uh, his, his father-in-law uh, living in communist Romania and how they, you know, when, when they took over the, the control of the country, they decided they would rewrite all the history books. They would kind of totally erase the past and, and write uh, the Communist Party as being the, the hero of all of these events. And he, and he compares that to our life today. He says, normal life in the 21st century can feel overwhelming at times. There's, there's a constant stream of messages coming to us through our phone, the TV, and the internet, not to mention the messages we receive without even noticing them, the way of life we take for granted with all the assumptions, beliefs, and practices that are left unexamined. Romanian believers knew their government was pushing an ideology. But what about us? What about now? What if we are living according to the myths of our culture without even questioning them? What if we are falling for false stories, not because they are in our history books, but because they're in our everyday habits? Right? We, we're living in a culture that's always trying to shape us. It doesn't have to take you away from your, your home. It doesn't have to remove you from your bedroom. But you are inundated with a, a, a portrait of what is meaningful for life and the images and the storylines it presents to you in the things that it will never mention, that it will never applaud, things that God says that's important, that matters to the ancient of days, that has eternal significance. And yet all the, the applause and everybody is captured by something that in God's eyes is so irrelevant. It just blows away with the wind, but we're so prone to believe that's what I really need. If only I could get that. If only I could have that relationship. If only I could have that kind of boyfriend, that kind of girlfriend, that kind of experience, that, that kind of stuff, that kind of future, then life would be okay. And we get so easily taken in, not because, again, it comes presenting some kind of argument, but because it just is so much that we face. And so not only do they put these youth uh, through that kind of program, but they give them new names. There's an, an entire Babylonian makeover. There, there's new teaching, there's a new diet that they're given, and there are new names. They're seeking to control every aspect of their lives. And, and, and think about what a name is. You know, what, what's in a name? Well, a name does a few things uh, for you. It, it, it describes who you are, and it also says something about the people you belong to. And, and the way that we do that today, it was a little different in these days, but the same sort of stuff was there. Uh, you got a first name, and you got a last name. 
and, and, your, and your first name kind of identifies you. Who are, who are you? Who are you as a, as a person, as an individual? Your last name says something about the people you belong with, right? Your family, who are you associated with? And, and, and those are the two questions, right? Throughout the, the, the time of your teenage years, and, and in some ways you, you never outgrow this because you could be in your 50s in here and still trying to ask some of these questions. You're trying to figure out, who am I? And who accepts me? And so we try to find our thing. What's the thing that I'm going to be known for? Where am I going to invest my time? Am I going to get really good at some certain sport? Right? Some instrument, some ability, some talent. I want, I want to be the, the, the girl who does this or the guy who's known for that, who's really funny, has a lot of followers on social media, whatever it is. Or there, there's, there's something that kind of stands out to us as if, if I could just get that, if I could just achieve that level of recognition in this category, then I would have a name. Then I would be significant. Then I'd be somebody who's Noticeable. One of the reasons why we want that is we also wonder who's going to accept me? Who's going to be there for me? And here's the irony is that those two, they, they, they pull on each other because we, we want to we stand out and yet we want to fit in at the same time. We want to we be you know, special. We want to be unique. And yet part of us longs to be like, everyone else at the same time. We want to be known, but we're afraid if people really knew who we were, we'd feel like a fake. If they, if they really saw past the show, if they really saw past the ways that I hide, either just through silence, I just don't say anything, I rarely ever risk commenting on something, speaking up, offering an opinion because my mind is just playing these weird games of trying to manage, okay, how are they going to react to that? What are they going to think of that? If I say that, then I'm really going to look like an idiot. And so I hide behind my silence or I hide behind being really loud and being the person who's always heard. And if they hear my, my voice first and loudest, then they won't ask any follow-up questions. Then they won't judge me. We hide behind the constant edits that we do before we post something or all the alterations to an image before it hits our profile. Right, whatever your means are. Right, you're, always, you're always joking. You're always tearing people down. You're always complaining about something. These are ways of trying to protect me from being seen. Even all the while, I, I, I desperately want to be seen. I want to be identified as someone. And the challenge is the world around you will answer that question for you if you let it. It's always trying to. Who are you and who do you belong with? It's not neutral when it comes to that. It, it's got a tidal wave pushing on you all of the time and like Glinda when she was off floating in the water, you will move in the direction it shoves you if you're not paying attention. It's interesting that 
Babylon, its ancient or, origin in the Tower of, of Babel, it was kind of birthed out of this desire. But let's gather everybody together. Let's belong to something big. And they say in Genesis 11, let's make a name for ourselves. And so we're going we're gonna to build something that'll last and only last as long as they have a common language until God separates them. And then he calls out one man named Abraham. And here's where these Israelites, they're in Babylon, but they remember their roots. And God had told Abraham, leave Ur of the Chaldeans, leave Babylon, and go to the place I'm showing you, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. I'm going to give you a name, Abraham. But these guys here, they, they get some new names, and renaming them was an attempt not only to, to change their identity, but to shape their commitments what life oriented around. Again, Daniel's name means God is my judge, but the name they, they give him is Belteshazzar, which means wife of Bel, Babylonian God, protect the king. Hananiah, his name meant the Lord shows grace. They give him the name Shadrach, which means I fear Aku, who's the moon god of Babylon. Uh, Mishael, his name meant who is like God, right? God's totally unique. There's nobody like him. Nobody else compares. That's what his name means. And, and just to add insult to injury, they make his name who is like Aku. They take that same phrase and apply it to that Babylonian deity. And Azariah, his name meant the Lord helps, but they give him the name servant of Nebo. Here are the people you serve now. Here's what you're going to be known for. If you want to advance in this society, this is what we do. This is what we are about. And here's how you're going to be named. I could just I put themselves in, in their, put yourselves in their shoes. Think about how much pressure there would have been to, to just go right along with this program. You've seen what these guys can do. You've seen how they can lay waste to an entire nation. It would have been so easy just to kind of move on, reinvent yourself. And not only that, they're, they're, they're taken into this, this kind of special class. They were the people who got noticed because they, 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 they were attractive, they looked good, they were smart, right? They had brains, they, they were people of influence, and the Babylonians say, hey, you know, you, you people seem like you matter. Why don't you come over here and, and we'll give you a special place in the kingdom of Babylon. It, just, it would have been easy to just kind of start over and go with the flow. But notice what Daniel does, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, Daniel's not just being a picky eater here. He's not just being really nutrition conscious. He's not saying, oh, I don't eat anything that has GMOs in it, you know. I only eat vegan. You got any other menus? Any alternative food here? Uh, that's not what's happening in this story. 
In fact, it's, it's, it's a little tough to understand exactly what is taking place. Uh, food was a way of identifying the people of God. Um, you know, he, he, God had given to Israel a, spe- a special diet. In many ways, it was pointing forward to what was going to be fulfilled in, in Jesus in the way that his holiness marks us out as special for him and how we serve him. But it doesn't seem to be that's the only thing that's going on and, and why you know, Daniel probably could have still made this food work and just only cho- cho- had chosen to eat the, the things that would fit with that, that diet. Uh, food was also, it, it had other associations, right? You see in some of these stories that uh, the wine that was used was, was used to toast to the Babylonian gods. And so it's possible that Daniel uh, wants to avoid that. But there, there seems to be something more that's going on here. It seems like he's just decided, I'm going to draw a line here. And I'm going to draw a line early in this experience. You, you, you've gotten into verse 8 in this book. And it's not going to be the first time that Daniel resists something. And he, and, he, and he does so in a way that requires courage and could really cost him. But that began here, where, where Daniel says, that's as far as you're going to get with me. I'm drawing a line here. He, he doesn't want to get lost in Babylon in all of its enticements, in all of its comforts. But the first challenge that Daniel and his friends face is not, we're going to feed you to the lions. It's, we're going to feed you. <laughs> uh, we're we're going to give you really good food. We're, we're going we're to take special care of you. You're, you're coming from a city that was laid under siege, which when that would happen in the ancient world, in fact, when that happened in Jerusalem, people were so hungry, people were so starving that they were tempted to eat their own children. I mean, that, that is how bad this situation was. How terrible. Because what, what would happen is they, they, they would surround the city and they would hold everybody in. Nobody could get in, nobody could get out. And they would starve them until they gave up. And the city of the people of God fell in that way. And then now you're removed and you're brought to Babylon and and you're fed from the king's table. I don't know how you're feeling about the Camp Living Waters food yet, but uh, further into this week, you'd be be willing to sell out for much shorter things, right? Uh, What do I need to do? Give me a new name, what? Uh, Give me me a new meal here. It it reminds me a little bit of of, uh, the Hunger Games, Right, you've got Katniss, and, and, and she's taken from an area where they've got these really meager rations of food, and she has to go out and, and hunt wild game and, and illegally in order to get what she needs just to take care of the, the basic necessities for her family. But then, then she's brought to the capital, and for the first time ever, she eats chocolate. And she's got every comfort that you could ever imagine and, and she's, she's become the, the celebrity gossip, right? She's the one who's on the talk shows. Everybody's talking about her, right? Forget about the fact that your home is in ruins and you're in the middle of a battle for your life. Just settle down and become part of the entertainment and eat really richly in the process. That's what they do to her. 
And that's what they do to these guys as well. Forget what's on the line, Daniel. Because there's so much that's good right here. But Daniel wants to preserve his distinctness, his identity. He doesn't want to forget where he's come from, be squeezed into a Babylonian mold. He's in Babylon, but he doesn't want Babylon to get in him. And, and, and this, is, this is his discernment. I don't know if we have this today. Because he, he's able to recognize something registers in him that this is a critical moment. But nothing about it looks that way. It, it, it doesn't feel like a crisis. Dinner served. And nothing about that seems alarming or dangerous. But, but he's able to see that that's a problem. Right? He, he plants his feet right here. It's not just the, the den of lions that's dangerous, but the king's dining room, eating at the, the table of the world and forget your God and who he's made you to be. Listen, it, it's, so, it's so easy to, to miss these kinds of moments because we've, we've become spiritually dull. We've tasted of so many different things and have gotten so used to this world and its standards, given into secret places of sin, made compromises in our thoughts, in our entertainment, and what we allow our eyes to see, and, and what captures us again and again, and that sense from the Holy Spirit that's supposed to say, hey, this is a problem. This is trying to take you in. This is trying to deceive you. To us, it just feels, uh, who really pays attention to that stuff anymore anyway? What's that really going to matter? What difference is that really going to make? Yeah, God, I, I want to love you and everything and serve you, but uh, I'm just kind of going to do with what I want to do right here. Because it makes sense. And it feels right. It feels so okay. It would have been so easy for Daniel to make a case. Why? Nothing about this feels wrong. And given the circumstances... It's understandable that he plants his feet right here. Del Ruff Davis writes, sometimes smaller commitments made along the way fortify faith to plant its feet when it has to meet more severe threats, right? He, he saw all of life in reference to God. God is my judge. My life answers to God. It's his evaluation. It's his assessment that matters. It's what he thinks of me. More than human opinion, more than the threats and the pressures that surround me. What does God have to say about this? And, and, and it says he resolved in himself, in his heart, that he would not defile himself. Nobody told him to do this. This was not some rule. This was not some like, hey, we're going to collect your phones at the session and you, you have to give it up, right? This was not imposed on him. 
There was something inside of him that wanted to honor the Lord with his life. And he faced potential cost as a result. Here's the message of of Daniel to us is that in our exile, we need to remember who we are. Remember whose we are and never feel at home ultimately in this world and what it offers. You're going to be spending a little time in the morning devotions starting tomorrow reading from the letter of 1 Peter and and 1 Peter uses this, this picture of an exile to describe not just what happened way back then but what it's like for believers to live away from the home. We're not home yet. We're still, we're still in this place called Babylon. And, and Peter writes this in chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed Right? Don't be pushed into the mold of the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Daniel knew God has rescued us. He he pulled us out of a foreign nation in the past. He has pulled his people out of uh, of Egypt in the Exodus. He redeemed us. That's my story. That's the storyline of the people that I belong to who are set apart for God's purposes, which means he's going to be faithful in the end. This is not the end of this story. We're not staying in this, in this nation. And he knew, my life doesn't belong to me. God purchased us for himself when he redeemed us. And that's what Peter says to us here. You're not your own. Your life is not yours to do as you please. You were bought. Jesus' blood was spent. And he exercises ownership. He exercises lordship over you to call you as as holy. Holy means set apart. It means different. It means not of the common stuff of this world that everybody else is a part of and celebrates and wants to be associated with and known for. How can we become comfortable with the things that Jesus spent his blood to forgive us of, to claim us? Do do you do you give place in your life for the very things the Son of God died for? 
Have they become comfortable to you? Have they become so easy? There's, there's not only no resistance, there's no fight. There's just embracing. There's just welcoming of what has nothing to do with the holiness of God. And if you, if you, if you belong to Christ, you were purchased. You bear his name. And so there, there ought to be a, a fear. There's a fear in Daniel. Not a Babylon. God's my judge. And I'm going to live for him no matter the cost. And God proves his faithfulness again and again. Ben, if you want to come back up, man. This is a book, and we'll see this several times. It's a book of, of great reversals. God demonstrates that it is always worth it to trust in him, to be known by him. And so you come to the end of the story. Daniel proposes to one of the servants. He recognizes kind of the difficult position he's in. And by, and by the way, I don't have time to develop this. Daniel's kind of a lesson in resistance doesn't mean you get out your sign and you protest and you, you start trending wars and hashtags. And uh, he, he kind of just moved on to the next thing to, to find another way through, this, uh, through these circumstances that he faced. But he says, test your servants. Let us eat only vegetables for 10 days. And, and you see at the end the evidence. You see whether or not we're more fit for service in this kingdom after God has cared for us and met our needs. And so in verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they would drink and gave them vegetables. And uh, that's not a statement about the power of vegetables. <laughs> that's a statement about how it is always rewarding to stand with the Lord, no matter how weird it feels, how out of place and out of sync it puts you with what everybody else is doing. You come to this thought at the very end, verse 21. It says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. All right, what's that mean? King Cyrus was the emperor of Persia. So Babylon, with all of its power, with all the ways it seems like this is what has arrived, this is where we are at now, this is what everybody's about, they are the ones who kind of hold our destiny in their hands. Daniel's still alive when Babylon is done. And this territory has been passed on from one kingdom to another. But God's servants and God remains and stays. The book of Daniel is a book of shifting kingdoms and governments and as Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and all these other people that seem like they're really mighty, they're just 
they're, they're, they're taking like, like God did, right? With taking quarters out of his hands and passing it on. I just want you to investigate your own life. The things that you're living for, the things that you are about, the things that so often get your energy, get your pursuit. Is it the stuff, not, not only does it not last as long as Babylon does, it's going to be gone. Matter of moments. But in terms of effort and diligence and resistance for the things that God has said, that will never be irrelevant. And it, by the way, it will never go unnoticed by Him. You will take that with you into all eternity. It might not always happen in this life, but every time you say, my, my feet are planted here, no matter what I face. That will never be a wasted moment. That's clear in Daniel's story and it's the testimony of our lives as well. Let's stand together. know how easy it is to grow comfortable with this world and its ways or to just receive the names that it provides for us the empty promises the enticements and you can feel so distant and so strange that's not your problem Lord the fact that a life of following you a life of costly sacrifice a life that goes against the current and faces ridicule and looks weird even to our fellow Christians because of their own pursuits but if that, if that feels unusual to us, the problem is not with you and your holiness. But we have, we have drifted. We have been pushed out by the current. We have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten there is a call. There is a claim. There is a name that we have been given. There is the name of Jesus. marks our days. Lord, would you, would you strengthen us? Lord, strengthen our resolve by faith, Lord, our, our trust in you. Trust in your worth. Lord, I, I pray that if any of us here Lord, if you are revealing to us that, that we, we don't even know you in this way to begin with, 
I just pray that you would make that clear this week. Lord, if, if, the, if the name of Christ is not the name that we bear, not the one in whom we have placed all of our hope, that we have, have, have not come to a place of trust in His blood to purchase us and to rewrite our storyline to lay claim on our lives. God, would you, would you help us to discern that? Would you call us by name? Lord, you are, you are holding us by the face. You are speaking. Now, Lord, we, we want to believe. We want, we want these encounters that we are reading about this week to be more than just distant stories or children's church tales or we, we want to we want them to set the pace of life for us help us Lord as we worship you now there's a place where mercy reigns 